Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 25, The King is Dead. Long live the king. We're back to the narrative today. I hope you all enjoyed the Persian segue, but it's time for us to return to our regularly scheduled program. Let's take a quick moment to reorient ourselves. It's October 336 BC. The Macedonian king, Philip II, has just been murdered by his royal bodyguard and ex-lover, Pausanias of Orestes. After the surprise murder by Pausanias, the man ran away and almost escaped before he tripped over his own feet, and the rest of the bodyguard caught up and killed him in retaliation. The whole affair seems simple on its own merit. A jilted ex-lover, ashamed of the treatment he had received, and Philip had done nothing to punish those involved in the crime. It's a story everyone can buy into. But many of the ancient sources point towards Olympias as the criminal mastermind behind the plot. After the incident involving Pausanias and Attalus, Olympias and Alexander are known to have consoled the young man. Especially since Alexander had his own personal issue with Attalus. The ancient sources are definitely hostile to women who hold influence in court. And Olympias, with influence as Philip's wife, Alexander's mother, and the royal play in the post-Alexander Wars, are un all unusual for the time. And the hostility against Olympias is clearly reflected because of it. The sources really downplay Alexander's involvement, if he was involved at all, and really ramp Olympias up. But it's not just the nurturing of Pausanias' grudge that makes it seem as if Olympias had arranged a plan, but her actions in the aftermath of the assassination. After Pausanias had been murdered, his body was strung up on display for everyone to see. Olympias put a gold crown on the man's head, the murderer of her husband, and a few days later had the body removed and buried near Philip's tomb. There may have not been love between Philip and Olympias, but this display is a bit incriminating. You could say she was grateful to Pausanias because his actions led directly to Alexander's accession as king, also securing her position as the king's mother. But it's a tough sell to me. Though it's not nearly enough evidence to pin the plot on Olympias' shoulders. In the end, Philip's murder leaves plenty of questions. And at the time, it seemed the simplest answer was the answer widely believed. Philip was 46 years old when he died. He had ruled for 23 years, taking a kingdom on the brink of destruction and making it the unquestioned power in all of Greece. If it was not for Alexander's great conquests, we could easily be calling Philip the Great instead. Still, it was Philip's reforms to the Macedonian economy Philip's reforms to the army, and his diligent training of them and keeping them a sharp, cohesive force through years of military activity. And most importantly, it was Philip's army that Alexander inherited. All the generals, the officer corps, and soldiers were Philip's. Alexander would make no changes to the army and largely leave all those in their positions untouched. Philip's achievements were great, and his contribution to Macedonia should not be forgotten. He gave Alexander the tools necessary for his future success. Speaking of which, 
It's now time to discuss Alexander's rise to power. In the aftermath of Philip's death, everyone was stunned. The first person to act, it seems, was Philip's trusted statesman, Antipater. By this point in time, Antipater was 64 years old. He had risen into prominence during Philip's brothers Perdiccas III's reign, and even higher so during Philip. He had become Philip's chief bureaucrat, while Parmenian became Philip's trusted lieutenant and general when it came to battle. Antipater took Alexander to a group of officers and soldiers a few hours later, and it was this group of people that acclaimed Alexander as king. Antipater's decisive move gained Alexander's gratitude and trust for the rest of his life. While Alexander was the most likely to inherit the throne, it wasn't 100% certain. Lurking in the wings were the potential rivals, like his cousin Amenitus and three other men from the Upper Macedonian royal house. This Upper Macedonian branch was known as the Lincestans, and their claims were tenuous at best. But, Amenitus was a dangerous rival for power, and as son of a former king, and married to the daughter of the most recent king. One of the Lincestan boys, also named Alexander, was married to Antipater's daughter, and he was one of the men in the room who had originally hailed Alexander as king. This action saved his life. Alexander the king had some work to do. Like I've said before, and I'll say it again, regime transfers are periods of great instability. All of Greece would be watching and waiting with bated breath. First, Alexander had to deal with domestic threats. To that end, the two Lincestan brothers were executed by Alexander. The biggest execution domestically that occurred was that of Amenitus, Alexander's cousin. Amenitus IV, son of Perdiccas III, the older brother of Philip. If you'll recall, Perdiccas had been the middle brother. His elder brother Alexander had ruled from 369 to 367 before he was assassinated. Perdiccas had ruled from 367 to 360 before he died in battle against the Illyrians alongside 4,000 soldiers. It was that crisis that Philip had become regent and then king, as the young Amenitus was only four to five years old. Amenitus had grown up favored in Philip's court, the king seeing his nephew, not as a rival, but most likely as a remnant of his brother and taking care of him. Amenitus fought in Philip's wars when he was old enough and eventually was married to Philip's eldest daughter, Kainane. We'll never know if Amenitus had been plotting against Alexander, but Alexander had been insecure about his position as heir for a while, and he went to great lengths to establish his position and security. Personally, I'm undecided on the execution. The Lonsestan princes were comparative nobodies at the time, well regarded among the nobles, but less of a threat than his cousin. But they all suffered the same fate in the end. Alexander's older brother Aridaeus was spared. Alexander had a soft spot for his older brother, and the mental handicap ensured that he was no threat. Alexander also took this opportunity to settle an old score with Attalus. Parmenian and Attalus had been sent ahead in 337 BC as an advance force in Asia to establish a beachhead. 
It also seemed that Atlas had been in correspondence with Athens, his primary contact being the ever-intractable foe of Macedonia, Demosthenes. Maybe the peace talks didn't work out between the two men, but after, Atlas turned over the letter to Alexander, perhaps as a show of good faith. But it would seem he squandered any goodwill long ago at the wedding feast of his niece. Speaking of which, the latest of Philip's brides, Cleopatra, had also fallen victim to the vicious court intrigue of the Macedonian court. Some sources have claimed that Cleopatra bore Philip two children, a boy and a girl. The timeline between the marriage of Cleopatra and Philip and the latter's subsequent death leaves a tight window for two children to be born. But it's not impossible either. Some speculate that the boy had been a son to Philip from another one of his wives, but we'll never know. The younger child, the boy, named Carinus, was murdered at the behest of Alexander, leaving no room for rivals now or in the future. Cleopatra and her daughter Europa were executed by Alexander's mother, Olympias. In a sad ending, there are contradictions to the death, but all sources agree that mother and daughter died with one source claiming Europa being killed in front of Cleopatra, and then the mother committing suicide not long after, or that both were burned alive together. In the usual brutal Argiad court of Macedonia, even this was considered a vindictive murder and had no political basis behind it, but instead reads as a vengeful act done for personal reasons. Apparently, even Alexander considered this a step too far, and was angry with his mother for committing such an act. All of this unfolded as Atlas in Asia was corresponding with Demosthenes, and this news may have spurred Alexander to acting quickly before Atlas could react. Atlas was either executed in Asia by soldiers sent by Alexander, or was brought before him and then killed. Alexander's accession to power was a bloody affair, with many executions ordered by the new king, and his rise into kingship also being due to the murder of his father. This is nothing compared to the sheer violence and war that will follow after the death of Alexander, not to mention Alexander's war of conquest. While it's an exciting time to learn about, it's going to be a generation and more of violence, as the only thing that people will respect is power something Alexander learnt watching his father, and that the rest of the world would learn watching Alexander. Now that things were at peace on the domestic front, Alexander now surveyed the scene to see what fires to put out next. Philip's death had thrown the geopolitics of ancient Greece out of whack. The powers that be had submitted not to Macedonia, but to Philip, and his diplomacy backed with a threat of force which he had been forced to display at Chaeronea. Philip had quelled the ever-squabbling Greeks for the moment. Perhaps had he lived longer, things may have been different. But barely after becoming master of all, he was now dead. Many adopted a wait-and-see approach, which, yeah, makes sense to me. Some didn't, though, as you guessed, and it was the usual pain in the rears who began the revolts. Unsurprisingly, those pans were Athens, because of course they would be. 
Demosthenes probably received word of Philip's death with tears of joy and immediately began rallying the Athenians against the Macedonians. And also the Thebans, who had been suitably chastened by Alexander personally at the Battle of Chaeronea, also revolted. And lastly, as a bit of a surprise to me, were the Thessalians. That's right. The Thessalians had been Macedonia's closest supporters during Philip's entire reign, which goes to show that there were always some who chafed at being under the thumb of Philip. Alexander would have none of it. He would be shown the same respect and fear that his father had been given. And if it was not to be given freely, he would take it by force if need be. Alexander was counseled by his older statesmen to use diplomacy to resolve these matters like his father would have done. In a trend we'll see again and again, Alexander would do the opposite of what he was being guided towards. Alexander was king now, and he would do what he thought was best, which typically, despite conventional wisdom, would end up working. Instead of dusting off his best toga to go wheel and deal, Alexander gathered up 3,000 cavalry and moved them south. Alexander would settle this with a display of force, or, if necessary, violence. He had been willing to do so at home, and was plenty willing to do it again to secure his dominance over the other Greek city-states. Alexander and his host moved south, entering Thessaly. The path Alexander needed to take was on a narrow road and through some mountains. As Alexander traveled down the path, the mobilized Thessalian forces blocked the way. Testing Alexander further, the blockading Thessalians sent a messenger to Alexander, letting him know they were deciding whether or not they would grant him passage. Alexander was furious. He believed he was in Macedonian territory and that they had no right to bar his path. This is why regime changes are so perilous. Many states under the influence of Philip saw their chance to regain their autonomy. And if Alexander wanted to get the respect he believed he deserved, he would need to earn it. Outwardly, Alexander had no choice but to wait for the Thessalian response. The path was too narrow, and Alexander had inferior numbers. So, while the young king was forced to wait, he sent men around to scout the area. They found a path they could carve through the mountainside. It took a few days to get done, but it would be able to give the Macedonian cavalry a path to get around the Thessalians and hit them in the rear. In a flash, Alexander and his army moved through the new pathway, surprising the Thessalians and catching them flat-footed. Hilariously to me, the Thessalians quickly changed their position and hailed Alexander as king. We recognize you as sovereign, oh great King Alexander, and all that fun stuff. Alexander, in my take on this, must have been very sarcastic. Oh, you mean me? Are you sure I'm king? I've had my doubts these last few days. Are you sure? Do you insist? Okay, if you say so. Alexander quickly moved on, not attacking the Thessalians, to which they must have sighed a deep breath of relief. Realistically, Alexander didn't want to waste his troops in a battle that was unnecessary, and so he continued south, ready to make Thebes and Athens submit to him. Continuing south, Alexander began to receive envoys, 
for many of the city-states in Greece, acknowledging his position, pledging alliance, and all the formalities of state. Thebes and Athens were still notably absent from these envoys, but once news of Alexander coming down south with an army, both city-states quickly changed their tunes. I think we can get an idea of Athens and Thebes' sobering realization with this quote from one of the Athenian generals, Phocion. The army which defeated us at Chaeronea has lost just one man, which sums it up nicely. Alexander had displayed considerable military acumen at the Battle of Chaeronea, and the army, which had been commanded to victory by father and son, was still the most powerful army at the time. Sparta also decided they would once again make a pithy statement, basically saying, Our forefathers have always led, and we will follow in their example. To which Alexander was probably like, Alright, anyways, you guys do you. Alexander moved on, having received submission from all the states, especially the big troublemakers in Athens and Thebes. And since he was now in the south of Greece, he decided he would visit the oracle at Delphi. Things began to go wrong for Alexander as he arrived, though. You see, it was still the winter, and the oracle did not operate during the winter, which reminds me of when my family and I visited Paris and went to go to the Louvre on a Tuesday, not knowing that they were closed on a Tuesday, which is such an arbitrary day to be closed. So, we went to the Musée d'Orsay instead, and went to the Louvre the day after. Anyways, first world problems aside, Alexander was furious, finding out the oracle was closed for business, and that he was being denied access into the temple. In a not-so-great look for Alexander, he forced his way inside the temple, found the head priestess, dragged her to the sacred stool, and threatened her with violence if she didn't give him his prophecy. Now here is one of those interesting Alexander moments we're unsure about. The priestess gave him his prophecy, and at some point called him invincible, which may have just been a sarcastic remark considering how he had just committed a religious sacrilege. But you know, sometimes we only hear what we want to hear. Alexander could have left the Oracle of Delphi thinking he was invincible, and coupled with this, his mother feeding him stories about actually being the son of Zeus instead of Philip, well, that can create an interesting mix of what someone can really believe about themselves. And despite why many times during the Persian conquest, he pushed on when others thought he should settle. But why would you settle if you believed you were the son of Zeus, a descendant of Achilles, and more importantly, invincible? It's quite the concoction of beliefs to have. All of it was quite the mindfuck and probably led to some of Alexander's riskier decisions, if you ask me. Either way, whether you believe it or not, Alexander left the oracle and returned back to Macedonia. Alexander continued to entrench himself in the political structure of his kingdom, but alas, more revolts were to occur. This time, though, it was from the north of Macedonia. Thracian kings were once again attempting to gain their independence now that Philip was gone. Alexander immediately began to prep his army for the campaign in the Balkans in 335 BC. It would be Alexander's first time as leader of the military, and all eyes would be on him as he began his first campaign as king, 
in the spring of 335. We'll leave it here for now, with Alexander and the army ready to set out north and knock some Thracian heads together. I want to thank all my listeners for listening to this podcast thus far. When I hit episode 10, I had gotten to 300 total downloads, and I had set a goal for episode 25, which this is. Doesn't time fly by? I had set a goal of 1,500 total downloads, but I didn't hit that goal. But that's okay. It was a bit ambitious of me. But I am pleased to say that I cracked a total of 1,000 downloads. This is insane. So thank you so much to everyone who is listening and enjoying the podcast. Next up, episode 50. And in the spirit of staying ambitious, I'm aiming for another 5,000 downloads. And I could really use your help to get there. Please consider spreading the word about this podcast if you're enjoying it and have other like-minded history fans for friends. Wherever you're listening to the podcast, please give it five stars in review, especially on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It really bumps the algorithm and suggests the podcast to those who are already listening to History Pods. Once again, I am so grateful to all of you, and I'll be back next week, and I'll end it here with my usual plug. I have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history. And you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. Follow me at Twitter at History Pinpoint, and you can find me on Facebook. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.